I've just met the most incredible people that can budget like you wouldn't believe, can cook and grow and create. Um, but all of that um, still doesn't, you know, it's not the fix. It doesn't alleviate um, f- food insecurity and that sort of weekly, monthly, yearly struggle um, to, to feed themselves and their family. We spend a lot of time on Dirty Linen talking about food that's abundant and delicious, food that we choose to eat, but it's it's a really tricky landscape for so many people in our community with around 15% of people experiencing food insecurity every year. Uh, And things are getting harder, not easier for so many people. Our guest today is Dr. Rebecca Lindberg. She is a postdoctoral research fellow in the Faculty of Health at Deakin University. Uh, Rebecca, welcome to Dirty Linen. Thanks for having me, Danny. We're speaking um, after the recent occasion of the relaunch of the community grocer in North or in Carlton, Carlton Market at the Carlton Public Housing Estate. Let's let's start there. Uh, what's the community grocer? Yeah, the community grocer is a not-for-profit social enterprise that runs affordable fresh fruit and vegetable markets in communities that are at risk of food insecurity. And rather wonderfully, on Friday afternoon, the last Friday in spring, we were able to relaunch our Friday market in Carlton after we had a, a winter hiatus because, oh, geez, that COVID pandemic knocked our market and our community around. So we we had to take a brief pause, but it was so wonderful to bring the market back on Friday. So who is the market for and what can those people get there? So the market is set up like a quite a typical fresh fruit and vegetable market. There's beautiful products um, often sourced to be in line with um, the cultural needs or particular festivals that are happening in the communities that regularly shop there. Um, so you can get, you know, wonderful products that you might not see in mainstream um, greengrocers or um, or retail outlets. And as you said, Danny, that, that Carlton market in particular is set up at the high-rise estate just off Ligon Street. So there is definitely a focus on um, on communities that are at a greater risk of food insecurity or um, experiencing financial distress, um, but it's also a market for everybody. And in fact, the more customers that shop at our market, the easier it is for us to, uh, you know, make a little profit that we can then divert back into the organisation. So, we operate out of two different high-rise estates and also in outer Melbourne um, in a community centre in Pakenham. And is the food subsidised? Is that why, is that what makes it affordable and a useful service for these people? Uh, yes, it is. It's, it's subsidised and really we need philanthropic and government funding um, or our fundraising efforts. That's what helps with the subsidies to keep the um, prices low and affordable whilst at the same time paying our wholesalers, paying the suppliers that um, obviously we, you know, we buy the products and um, any of that income that, that we do generate or the subsidies that um, are able to come in through our philanthropic funding and government funding. They cover our staffing costs, our communication and website management and, uh, you know, the awareness raising and the community development work that we do around the market. So it's a market, but it's so much more than a market. 
what are some of the social benefits beyond, you know, the simple fact of taking home a, a bag of food um, of such a market? Our prices are 24 to 30% cheaper than those that are um, in the sort of surrounding outlets. We do an annual evaluation of, um, of uh, you know, the local food environment. So um, it is simple, as, as you say, but it, it's powerful to ensure that people have access to healthy, nutritious food at, at prices that they can afford. Um, and it means about 50,000 serves of fruit and veggies every year. Um, but also, we're, you know, we're really a culturally diverse community. We serve 17 different national nationalities um, across our markets and so customers come and they you know swap recipes and discuss with our staff and volunteers and with one another's about you know how how they use the different food products and it's really about social inclusion as well and 86% of our customers do report that they feel more connected to the community because they come down for a shop and a chat and that recipe swap and uh, except for this more difficult period over the pandemic um, that what we're working towards for next year and what we've done in the past is other activation activities around our market so it might be music it might be um, drinking tea or coffee it might be a community barbecue so those wraparound um, activities that you know they bring life to markets so people want to come and you know have a chat let their kids play at a local playground and 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 have a cup of tea with a neighbor and how does this fit into what you do at Deakin like why is a, a health researcher helping with the market. I did start um, my kind of time with the community grocer with um, quite a focus on um, data and evaluation. So how we can take those annual snapshots of say food costs locally or how we can get um, customer feedback um, in a, with va- validated and reliable tools with um, you know junior researchers in the form of dietitian students from Monash University that do placement with the community grocer every year. So really it was more the research and development focus um, that I kind of took on um, when I first joined um, the community grocer so that it had an evidence base to drive its decision making and to prove its impact for, for funders and other stakeholders. Um, but just this year, um, I, I actually started as as the chair along with Leah Galvin. Um, so our um, yeah, we, we have this really wonderful opportunity to now do more um, you know strategic work with the organisation, and I now have a bigger role in in governance. So. Um, I, I really enjoy the mix, actually. Um, being a, a researcher, as you say, I spend a lot of time at a desk. I spend a lot of time crunching crunching data and doing somewhat dry work. Um, but, you know, mornings like Friday where I was out in community, um, you know, seeing everyone buy affordable fresh fruit and veggies, that um, that's just such a, a lovely anecdote to all of this solo time we have and all this time with, with the computer. So um, I, I find that it works quite well having those two hats. Yeah, that's so interesting. I've been scanning. Um, I haven't been reading all your publications. I have to fess up on that, but I've been reading the titles, which is a start. And I mean, there's so much that I would love to ask you to dig into for us. Um you talked about policies around reducing sugar. You've talked around the stigma around food assistance. You've talked about structural violence in the lived experience of food insecurity and about government policies that facilitate healthy diet-related practices. I mean, I suppose like when you when you just read all that out, you sort of feel like this experience of, of 
uh, supplying oneself with food is really so intertwined with so many other aspects of society. Um, what are some of the big issues that stand out for you in terms of food insecurity, healthy eating and social inclusion? Well, the big issues are, um, you know, probably more broadly linked to how we how we tackle poverty and injustice in, in a place like Australia. And I guess food is a bit of a, a litmus test for that. Um, so some of the policy priorities um, that, that people like myself and others that work in this kind of community food and public health nutrition space, what we love to see some progress on is, you know, a better standard of living for those that are relying on um, job seeker or single parent allowance. Um, we just know that those the, the, the incomes that many Australians are reliant on, they're not sufficient enough to afford a decent diet. And often it's food is the elastic item in the household budget. You know, like you have the fixed price of, of your gas bills or of school fees or mortgage repayments or um, other, you know, comparable outgoings. But food, when you go to the supermarket or you shop at the community grocer, you know, one week it might be $150 for the household, but the next week that's that's what can sort of shrink. And, um, and so a big ticket policy item that could have universal benefit for household food security, it's not a food solution, it's actually an income solution and it's about ensuring people have a decent standard of living um, for, for those that are reliant on um on Centrelink and, and um, you know, social security. But, of course, those that are in wages as well experience food insecurity. And so we need an adequate standard of living for people that are in waged work and, you know, and um, you know f- fair wages for those that are on, on low incomes and, and precarious work environments. Yeah, I mean, that, uh, that really resonates with me. I feel it's similar to, you know, people are told, well, this is how you can save at the store or why don't you grow some of your own food? Um, why, are you, why, are you going, why are you going through drive-through? Like the, it's all this sort of personal responsibility that is lumped on people who perhaps don't, you know, have um, reduced funds and therefore are stressed and um, not perhaps inclined to plant some pumpkin seedlings. Um, it's it's sort of it, that 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 um, reversion to personal responsibility when it's actually a structural issue for the most part is so frustrating. And it's it's the same with sustainability solutions, I guess, where it's like, yeah, sure, walk to the tram, but um, what about you know, these macro government policies that, uh, yeah, was that um, are fueling the world with, yeah, literally with fossil fuels. So, I mean, yeah, it feels like cutting across all kinds of disciplines, whether it's, um, yeah, health or climate, it's a lot would be solved with a universal basic income and basically, and um, yeah, banning billionaires, for example. I'd vote for that, Danny. <laughs> Um, so, uh, yeah, where do we go from there? I mean, the good news is that, uh, you know, I'm not alone and, and, and many recognise that, you know, the necessity of, say, raising the rate and we have seen a little bit of progress on that issue. Um, we also have our very first uh, inquiry um into food security in the domestic kind of context, which is um, underway at the moment um, from the Department of Agriculture. 
Um, I think we're seeing some good progress uh, from a national monitoring of household food security through the Australian Bureau of Statistics and um, the Department of Health. Um, instead of just relying on sort of, you know, one or two pretty basic questions when they go out and they ask households what's happening in terms of your health and your food, um, in, in the kind of coming year or two, we're going to um, get a much better comprehensive um, insight into the level of food insecurity for, for adults, not for children, unfortunately. Um, and of course, <laughs> I'm, I'm very passionate about innovative, um, you know, community-based um, innovation like like the community grocer that that focus on dignity that focus on choice that focus on nutrition and and working with and for communities um, so that's sort of ground up and then I suppose those universal or those kind of government um, led national initiatives that I've spoken to are sort of top down um, and I, I do think it, it could be a bit of a silver lining of the pandemic or um, you know I- inflation and and more discussion about cost of living pressures if, if we can keep up that conversation and um, it stays in the media and on the policy agenda, that might mean that we can make some breakthrough and progress on, on addressing and better responding to food insecurity in, um, in the Australian context. So I do, I do think there's hope, but yeah, big, big, pish, big picture issues around equity, around climate change and, and justice and around uh, addressing um, some of those, you know, really ingrained, uh, you know, issues around, um, you know, colonialism in Australia and, and racism and um, refugees and asylum seekers, you know, who's, who's in and who's out. I mean, these are the communities that are the most impacted um, by food insecurity. In Indigenous Australian communities, it's something like one in four households. Um, and and it's, it's not a food issue, as I said before, you know, it's, it's very much li- linked to these social and economic and political issues that are the underlying drivers of food insecurity. They're the underlying causes of why, you know, mums and dads struggle to think about, you know, what they're going to feed their kids over the weekend or the school holiday period, the festive season, which is coming up. The, the, the interviews that I've done with, with people, they say, this is not a joyous time of the year. This is an incredibly stressful time of year that's typically conceptualised as a time of abundance, as a time of gathering around food, as you know, kind of hyper consumerism. Um, but but for many people, they you know they feel that it's you know it's it's the opposite. Um, yeah, there was um, uh, a piece that went around a few weeks ago. Virginia Trioli wrote about it and spoke about it on ABC Radio about a, a mum who picked up some yogurt from food bank and asked if it was okay for her to keep it beyond the the use by date because she was thinking she might serve it to her kids as a treat for Christmas. Um, And I think that really shone a light on the desperation or the desperate straits that a lot of people are in for for those who are more fortunate. But it is certainly a a time when, yeah, certainly not everybody's out ordering a ham. Yes, I I did see that story and um, it's not unique. Um, but it, it was fantastic that it that it got coverage um and, and devastating <laughs> at the same time, Danny. 
So uh, I noticed one of the stories or one of the articles that you contributed to was in the Journal of Poverty and Social Justice, and it was around the stigma of um, emergency and community food assistance, this idea that that beggars can't be choosers. Can you talk about food relief and dignity and, and how those things tie together? Yeah, look, I, I can speak about it um, both through my research and also, um, you know, as a as a a professional who's worked in um, and with emergency food relief organisations um, for you know the last fifteen years, and it's it's such a tricky issue because on the one hand you've got you know incredibly motivated volunteers or philanthropists or food businesses that are um, you know donating or giving surplus food. To this um, um, emergency food sector, which is um, growing in in size, um, I've done some work to really look at um, the tonnage that goes up and up and up each year um, across the emergency food um, system. With you know large organisations like Food Bank Australia and Second Bite and Oz Harvest, etc., and then you know those frontline agencies as well, the St Vincent's and um, and Salvation Armies and local church groups so it's you know it's it's a sign that um community members are outraged by hunger and they want to help their neighbors and they don't want food that is of you know fit for human consumption and and that's good quality and that might otherwise have gone to waste they want to capture it and safely redistribute it to people and that is on the one hand really wonderful but on the other hand through talking to people that are recipients that, that need to plug into this emergency food system. Again and again, I hear about the, uh, you know, the inefficiencies in the system, that cultural needs and um, dietary requirements and um, preferences for nutrition don't get reflected in the food that is supplied. Very rarely there is choice. Um, often it is, you know, a pre-prepared hamper of mainly processed non-perishable food not the sorts of foods that you often want to organize a celebration around or if you had your choice they're not the sorts of foods that you'd walk into a supermarket or another retail space and buy and so you know it's it's really from spending time with community members um, first and foremost that I began to problematize I guess emergency food um, and and became thirsty to work on alternatives that did really focus on community consultation, on dignity achieved through choice, achieved through creating environments that look like, you know, quote unquote, normal and socially acceptable food environments like the community grocer market. Um, And then I guess in my kind of scholarly work, there is, you know, a body of evidence or these kind of critical public health thinkers that that suggest actually, you know, the growth of, of charities should necessarily be celebrated that in that in fact they might even be hiding hunger or letting governments and others off the hook uh, for creating the conditions that um, you know perpetuate hunger and food insecurity in, in places like Australia um, and they might in, even inadvertently make make it look like that the problem is solved um, when um, the evidence to the contrary is it can be as something as simple as even the more tons that these guys move and the bigger that these food charities get unfortunately it doesn't trigger um, you know a lessening of food insecurity across high-income countries yeah wow there's 
I have so many thoughts. <laughs> I think the macro one is that the, it, this problem of food waste is just in some ways it's just another can that's kicked down the road in the same way that fast fashion is kicked down the road to the op shop or soft plastics are kicked down the road to the now not operating soft plastics bin, um, you know, to create warehouses full of soft plastics that are not going anywhere. Um, So there's that side of it where it's, um, it's just about responsibility. It's about what is the end, end of life, of the product that is being produced but it also just on a um micro level it makes me think of a story i read recently about one of those you know in by the sounds of it really fantastic apps that allow people to turn and turn up to a deli or, or a cafe and pick up leftover stuff at the end of the day whether it's muffins it's often muffins donuts um sa- salads or whatever um and you can find out on the app where you can get that stuff and you can go and pick it up for a minimal minimal cost or for free but then the person who was writing this article took it home and she just honestly had too many donuts too many for herself too many for the neighbors um and that some of them were a bit squashed that didn't really seem like a, a good prezi to give the little kids next door and in the end that food still went in the bin mm. yeah i mean the, the your, your macro um parallels i think uh, you're exactly right around plastic and um other sort of environmentally sustainable um you know issues and i i've, I've definitely also interviewed people that said well you know <laughs> what do i do with you know three three bags of potatoes that are just about to go off and what am i supposed to do when my you know when my child is gluten intolerant and we keep getting pasta 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 you know from 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 the local food pantry so um, just because the waste is moved on, um, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that it is indeed addressing um, people's hunger needs or stocking um, pantries. And at the same time, pe- people do do creative things. <laughs> they can pass on to their neighbours um, or, you know, repurpose. And in fact, uh, you know, I've, I've just met the most incredible people that can budget like you wouldn't believe can cook and grow and create um but all of that um still doesn't you know it's not the fix it doesn't alleviate um food insecurity and that sort of weekly monthly yearly struggle um to to feed themselves and their family yeah and i'd say creativity is something that's very hard to muster when you're living in constant stress um it's almost sometimes it would feel like the burden was being passed on to you rather than what you were being given um alleviating your problems yeah absolutely and the time that people need to spend you know going to the outlet store on a sunday because there's great deals and then going to a fresh food market on a tuesday because you know that's when the price discounting happens and then looking in the catalogues for the you know for the best buys and getting a voucher lining up for it waiting on <laughs> waiting on the phone to see if they can book in to a particular service because they've they've just you know scraped over their three months and they're eligible again for another parcel like the you know the phenomenal time cost that goes into to managing um you know living off the smell of an oily rag to to, to feed yourself is 
is, you know, absolutely phenomenal, let alone, as, as you say, that getting the creative juices going to, you know, make an amazing Sunday meal, um, that, that, that's not a luxury that um, many people can afford when, when uh, they're, they're managing food insecurity. Mm. Um, this other piece of yours about structural violence and food insecurity, can you tell me what that's about? Yeah, it's it's such a catchy kind of emotive idea, um, stru- structural violence, and it's it's about thinking about um, you know st- structures, I guess, in society that cause harm, and not that they um, necessarily deliberately do it. There's not some evil overlord that's kind of making particular decisions to to cause harm in society. It can be, you know, can be more, um, you know, inadvertent than that. That um, decisions that can be made, you know, by by our government, um, by those that are in positions of power, the effect that it can have on 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 people's lives might might be harmful. And so, in this particular study, I looked at people's experiences in Centrelink, where they spent their time, um, and also uh, people who spent time in food charities. So it was it was a really large study. We we focused on a whole lot of things. Um, people who were food insecure living in the state of Victoria. We did interviews with them, but for for this structural violence inquiry, I wanted to basically know what is it like when people kind of spend time in these settings where there's been policy decisions and, um, you know, uh, d- decisions about made about how to address food waste and how to tackle food insecurity and how to tackle, um, you know, living in poverty or living without a job. Um, I wanted to understand, well, what is it like when you walk through the door at those services? What, what are the sorts of experiences you have? And, Unfortunately, what was fairly uniform across these interviews is that people felt um, that there was a lot of demeaning experiences, that they were sort of deprived an adequate um, standard of living um, in in those experiences, uh, in those settings as well. Rebecca, I wonder what you think about restaurants, cafes, pubs, you know, there's a lot of people that are engaged with that part of the food world that listen to this podcast. Do you think that they have a place in helping to fix things or at least, I don't know, turn, distract people from the issues at any point? Yeah, look, I, I think we all have a place, you know, when, when we vote and participate in, in uh, you know, our democracy, um, you know, I guess I'd encourage every voter to be having that litmus test around, well, what, what is this doing for, you know, for, for neighbours and community members that might be experiencing disadvantage, who, who wants to raise the rate <laughs> and ensure that everyone could um, have a decent standard of living. Um, so there's, you know, just that role as a citizen. And those that work in, um, you know, in food businesses as well often do donating or fundraising or can um, host community events that um, help to raise the profile of food insecurity and you know, that's absolutely wonderful. And, um, uh, you know, a lot of ex-chefs or um, hospo staff in, in, end up um, working in emergency food organisations as well. And if they can really, you know, take on that challenge of how can I deliver food in a way that does promote dignity, that does promote nutrition, that is, you know, culturally inclusive and, and focused on what community wants rather than sort of top down. Um, there are really wonderful versions of, of food relief and community food initiatives out there. Um, so I think, um, yeah, the, the 
hospo sector, as you said, um, has a really great role to play, Danny, and he's doing great things. Yeah, I'm an ambassador for Fair Share, which is um, brilliant. Which I think does really good work in reducing food waste and and um, supplying culturally appropriate food to frontline organisations. And I know a lot of the chefs that work there find it enormously satisfying and. And they are able to be in a creative mindset where it's dealing with, you know, produce that sometimes is grown by fair share, but also produce that's donated um, and just, you know, turns up in the warehouse and they um, wrangle it into delicious and nutritious meals. Uh, So certainly a different way of using those incredible skills that chefs have. Brilliant, Danny. Yeah, fair share do do great things. Totally agree. Um, well, Rebecca, it's been so interesting to hear about your work. It's um, I feel like you know there are all these different quote unquote food worlds, and sometimes they don't overlap as much as perhaps they could. So I'm really excited to dive into your food world for a little bit and to bring you into ours. Um, thank you so much for being part of Dirty Linen. My pleasure, Danny. And I, I have just brought up that paper if you'd like me to close out with a quote that I was really touched by from my work on structural violence. Oh, yes, please. So this was one of my interviewees. Uh, she was 69 years old when I asked her about what it was like for the very first time that she needed food charity. She described, I was really embarrassed. I went red. My heart was beating and I didn't know what to do. I was standing there and someone came up to me and said, have you got a pension card? And I said, yeah. And then they took me over to a table. They were asking me about myself and all this. They were really, really nice people. So, I did feel really embarrassed, really embarrassed. Even sometimes now when I go, I think, oh, geez, do I need to come? Can I get someone else to get it? It's heartbreaking, isn't it? It is. And I'm sorry to finish on that that sadder note, um, Danny, but it – these are, these are, you know, real people's experiences in, um, in food relief um, settings, but it, it does underscore all that we've talked about, about, you know, that, that need for alternative approaches and for big system, you know, change and upstream solutions so that everyone can, um, can eat well. And I know that that's, that's what Dirty Linen is all about. Absolutely. And anyone can go to the community grocer in Carlton and, um, yeah, check out what's there, right? Yes, please. So it's Friday. Is it Fridays? Every Friday morning in Carlton, every Tuesday morning in Fitzroy, and we're Thursday mornings in Pakenham, the communitygrocer.org.au. Amazing. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Thanks, Danny. This is Dirty Linen, and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This.